If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week by my co-host, editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News, Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? It's going uh, really well. We are back in the studio here at TechCrunch HQ. We are not on the road. We are not remote. We are not in Boston. We're home, which actually feels... Yes. It feels tremendous. Um, But I have a little bit of housekeeping stuff before we jump into this, which is that if you go to the TechCrunch YouTube page... You can now see the occasional video clip of this show. So if you want to see what I look like wearing relatively large headphones, not the fashionable variety uh, of this episode, you should be able to find that up there. And according to my producer, quote, go smash that subscribe button. And that is the last time we will use youth talk on this podcast. But uh, we are now available uh, in video as well, at least for clips of the show. And with us this week, we have a very special guest, John Vrionis, uh, co-founder and partner of Unusual Ventures. John, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, and critically, we have, a, we have a sports fact, which is a very rare uh, moment on the show. And uh, you are a Cleveland Browns fan. I am indeed, Alex. Uh, and are you from Cleveland, the Cleveland area? I lived there until I was about seven. And then you moved to Georgia. Back Tr- to your earlier comment. True. So you went further south as you got older. Interesting. Yeah, but the Cleveland Browns thing stuck with me for uh, now 44 years. Uh, and for people who don't know, the Browns are a football team with a famously uh, tough run of seasons. Very for, nice of you to put it that for way. For a while. <laughs> but the struggles uh, have gotten better in the last season or two, and you guys actually look relatively okay going into the season. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I don't like your team, Fly Eagles Fly, but, <laughs> right, I mean, right, I respect right. where you are. And for those who don't know, Unusual Ventures is a $160 million seed fund that officially launched last year. Um, John works alongside Jyoti Bansell, who is the founder of AppDynamics. John, a former partner at Lightspeed, was an early investor in AppDynamics, so the two go way back. And um, just a little fun fact about Unusual, the fund works with nonprofits instead of the usual LPs, as well as historically black colleges and universities, foundations, and health-related institutions. Yep. So this is the first VC we've had on some time that we're like, hell yeah, yeah. all right. You seem okay. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the show. It's a good start. Yeah. Uh, shall we talk about DoorDash? Yes. Uh, now, we've been covering DoorDash a lot on the show of the last couple of months because they've been making a lot of noise, but this time they have not raised a new round uh, in breaking news. They've actually bought some things. They bought two companies. One was an acquire, we think, Kate, and one was more of a product deal. Do you want to tell us the kind of the thumbnail about those? Yeah, so it looks like DoorDash has acquired a company called Scotty Labs. It's not a startup that Alex and I were familiar with, but it is a teleoperations company that's working on the technology to enable people to remotely control self-driving cars. And what does that mean in English? I think it just means that DoorDash is doubling down on autonomous delivery. Yeah, that's my guess. I mean, so, so John, when you see a company buy a couple of startups that seem pointed in one direction, that they kind of share a theme, you can presume the acquiring company is trying to move in that direction as well, right? I would agree, yeah. Yeah, so in this case, uh, Level 5, by the way, the other small deal was an acquire, and it was a, a company that was doing autonomous mapping. So this is kind of in the same space. Um, and this is, goes back to what we said about Postmates, which is that these companies are pursuing uh, the small little wheel robots that kind of bounce around the cities, at least theoretically. And Kate, you saw one of these in line. Yeah, so I think it was last week that Postmates actually got the physical copy of their permit in order to test the little uh, robots around town, which are going to uh, make last mile delivery more efficient for Postmates. And... Last week sometime, I saw one of the little guys in Soma. 
Was it, was it, this is a dumb question, but did it look kind of adorable as it bounced along? It did look adorable. Okay, because they're working to make the little robots cute so you don't like hit them. But it sticks. also felt kind of dystopian to see it. It was just kind of like. Why, why, why dystopian? Because it's a robot on the street, just there. I don't know. Not what? used to that. I, I feel like the first time I saw an autonomous car on the streets of SF or an autonomous prepared car, I was like, oh, holy crap, that's so amazing. But then, you know, the 58th time, it kind of loses. I don't think we're going to be shocked by this. No, we're used to it. Yeah. So do you guys think that the robots or the cars will be teleoperated? I mean, I, when, they, when they mess up, you can't swear on the show. We forgot to tell you that beforehand. You can't say it. You, you can. We'll just, we'll just bleep yeah. you. Anyways, <laughs> try if, not. if the robots mess up, then the humans can kind of dial in, if you will. I mean, this is discussed in uh, the trucking space that, you know, autonomous trucking is probably best on the highway, but you might want to have humans guide the trucks in the last, you know, last mile or two. Uh, and probably with uh, this sort of telehandling autonomous control with human help, probably best for when a thing gets stuck and needs a little extra assistance. Because I, I can't see these small robots working uh, on all sidewalks, even in here in SF. I mean, let alone cities that have less well-maintained um, kind of public infrastructure. So. so if the DoorDash car is teleoperated, who brings the food to your door? I think you have to go get it. Yeah, I, th I think it comes, like, say, it comes to your block, you go out and get it. I don't really... That's how Uber Eats works for me now. I have to, like, go down and like, go to the car and, like, pick things up. Really? So, yeah, because oh, otherwise... I don't use Uber Eats. Huh. Yeah. Well, okay, going back to the point, which <laughs> is, uh, and, and this is what I, why I think it's an interesting story, because we've talked a, for a long time, going back to the early days of Uber and the early days of Lyft, about how these companies have tried to pursue autonomous driving or other ways to reduce human inputs into their cost structure. And, you know, honestly, no one has made any progress in that so far. All the money has gone into autonomous startups, autonomous driving, autonomous vehicle acquisitions, like the cruise deal that everyone knows about. And yet I have never taken a, uh, a ride in a fully autonomous car that wasn't set up as part of like CES or something. And we've seen one of right. these robots yeah. out in the wild. So I, I'm kind of curious, when is this going to show up? When are we actually going to see these, you know, more en masse? But, you know, here, even here in SF where we, quote, live in the future or whatever, nothing. Just, just a disappointment. Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line here is DoorDash is, is just like Postmates, going to be focusing a lot on robot, robotic deliveries, um, and that's why they've acquired these two companies. Yeah. Can we before we go into the seed thing? I want to ask John a question. Um, remember back when Marissa Mayer was at Yahoo and she was buying lots of little companies, and it, it was kind of like this cool thing. People were selling their companies to like Yahoo for like 30, 40, 50 million, and it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of these middle sized exits that we don't seem to hear as much about now. I'm kind of curious, are there, is there, is there material liquidity for like not early stage, but kind of mid stage startups out there that I might not be hearing or is liquidity mostly tilted towards later stage startups and companies that are a bit more mature? It seems like there's both. I mean, something like the Scotty labs, right? It's probably a very talented technical team that is going to help with autonomous vehicles and the go to market in that is pretty tough, right? You got to have the whole solution. So it's probably a good fit inside DoorDash, and there's clearly a, a bit of a war going on for technical talent in this space. So pretty clever of them. I mean, it's it's I would bet it's one of their largest expenses, the drivers. And so if they can move away from that over time with technology, it's got to be part of the roadmap. I mean, that's why Uber's doing it too, I would imagine. So whether it's early stage companies like that, I mean, that company had only received a few million dollars of seed funding, or mid stage. Sometimes the go to market to really go the whole way, it requires a ton of capital. And so it can be the best thing for the founders to, to find a home inside a larger company and share, you know, basically leverage the capital they've raised to take that technology to market. I mean, that's the bet Cruz made essentially with the GE deal and the later capital infusions. But I mean, still in that point, I still, Cruz is not, I think, commercially applied yet. 
You know, even Waymo's technology has generated, you know, a dusting of revenue from some rides in Arizona, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think machine learning and AI technologies where life and death matters are going to take a lot longer than maybe in... As they should. Yeah, agreed. Pick packing and shipping maybe is you can get away with some errors. Uh, driving, I think we're all hopeful that they wait until they've got it right. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Well, let's move on to uh, to seed. Kate, you um, put an article this week about the kind of the fight for seed and how the seed world is shaping up. Um, full of some really great quotes, actually, from uh, Samuel Shaw, who's been on the show. And um, what was that about? Yeah, so I'll give a summary, and then we can talk a little bit about it. But essentially, it's just about a trend of really big mega funds striking seed deals. So, you know, a fund with $1.5 billion, say, making a $4 million deal. And the reason they're doing this, well, there are several reasons, but one is the competition at the Series A is so comp- is, is so tough right now that the best way to get into a Series A is to already be an investor in the company. So some of these big funds are going downstream as far as the seed, making deals there. Um, and it also has to do with the pedigree of talent uh, out there today. We have a lot of startup founders now who have spent five years at Airbnb or Stripe or WeWork or whatever it may be, and they're rolling out and starting their own companies. That's why we've seen funds like Wave Capital, which I know Crunchbase has covered, which initially sought to only invest in Air- the Airbnb mafia. They've since broadened their scope, I think, because they realized, like, well, there's probably more out there than just Airbnb Mafia. But yes, there's all these opportunities at the seed, and you're seeing a lot of competition amongst uh, seed investors and big funds. So I definitely want to get John's take on this because you do make a lot of seed deals. Is this something that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the more interesting phenomenons in the ecosystem right now, and it's you know part of why we started Unusual. So when I, when I think about these big funds coming down, my view is they're going to kind of stretch their expertise because people that make intelligent deals at Series C might not make as good of a deal at Series A. And by the time you get to the seed stage, you're not betting on metrics or net retention or the things you can kind of really get your, your mathematical hands around in the late stage. So how do these big funds do at the seed stage level? Do they, do they operate in, intelligently? Do they, do they flounder? I mean, look, reasonable people can disagree. Sure, um, sure, sure. I think the reality is it's very hard to be world-class in everything, right? You're, you just think the doctors you choose, right? Your heart surgeon isn't the same person who might deliver your baby, right? So investing is exactly the same. Entrepreneurs go through very different phases in terms of what they need over the course of building a startup into an iconic company. So these stage agnostic funds trying to be world-class at every stage, uh, you know, we disagree with. We, we think that you know, at the seed stage, there's some really unique things that you can be helpful to an entrepreneur around. Um, but I understand the argument why they're doing it. They want to be upstream and make sure they don't miss out. I, I think it's a little disingenuous sometimes when they say, hey, we're going to give you $5 million and spend a lot of time with you when they also write 50 or $100 million checks. The reality is, as a fiduciary, should they be spending as much time with the $5 million right. investment as the 50? So I'm not sure they're helping entrepreneurs the way they claim to. And that's one thing that we just we didn't feel good about. But what's also happening at the same time that I want to get your take on is a lot of seed funds are raising larger, say, opportunity funds to invest, you know, later stage. So you're kind of seeing firms that are, you know, say, usually late stage, usually early stage going both directions. So why are we seeing seed investors doing that? The reality is there's really three kinds of venture investors, right? There's company builders, people who really enjoy the early stage. There's private company investors who are very knowledgeable about the metrics and statistics that a growing company should follow. And then there's gamblers. And so a lot of the people in venture capital are very good private company investors. It's financial engineering. They love it. They're very good at it. But that's not what the founders need in the first two years. At the same time, they're in the business of money, 
I mean, you get a two or two and a half percent management fee on every dollar you own. So or you, you're managing that's that can be intoxicating. So a lot of these funds, you know, whether they do good investments or not, people are getting very wealthy and it'll be they'll be long gone before the entrepreneurs or the LPs figure out if they were good at it or not. So if you really want to know why they're raising more money, it's a lot of times it's so that they can, you know, de-risk their own careers by having large salaries. The, the non, uh, well, that's correct. I totally agree with that. But the, the slightly more generous interpretation would be that if they have a secondary vehicle of capital, they can then uh, better defend percentages later on in the in the ownership cycle as a Series B and so forth. Um, one one thing that I've heard about Seed is that it's very hard for early investors to get pro rata in later rounds because they're being squeezed out by by investors that want to come in and buy uh, well, everyone wants the max ownership, right? But they're being more aggressive about that to the point at which seed investors are expected to give up their pro rata to make enough room for more capital to come in, at, even at the Series A. Um, is, is that is that a fair uh, description of parts of the market today? Look, I think some of these seed funds, the reason they're doing the SPVs and the, and the opportunity funds is so they can maintain their ownership through subsequent rounds. The reality is they probably don't want to give up the ownership to somebody else after they've done all the hard work. Right, all the hard stuff, the all the nitty-gritty nitty gritty work, yeah. Yeah, at the same time, they raise the fund with a certain investment profile and a skill set, right? LPs gave them money because they're good at a particular stage. So it's interesting that they're also able to raise you know, late-stage funds because it's unclear if they're really good at investing. Is that the right valuation to pay for a company in the Series D or E? It's not really their skill set, you know. So another thing we're seeing that I know you you were kind of like WTF to is uh, some of these really, really early stage funds are doing something called like a pre-idea investing. So that one investor, Chris from SignalFire, explained that as when he hears that a really smart person at a company like Airbnb is thinking of leaving, they'll invite that person in for a meeting and they'll whiteboard and chit chat about what kind of projects and then like five minutes after this person quits their job, SignalFire will write them a small check, which I think is kind of a interesting extreme. Is this kind of like when Google got its first 100K before they even had a name or incorporation sort of thing? I don't know anything about that story, but maybe. Yeah, so I, I think the story is, you know, someone just wrote them a check that was like, here's 100K, like when you get a company put together. Dave like, Sheridan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, this happened um, with the co-founders of Palm when they left to form Handspring. Someone wrote them a check for like their names, Inc., as a joke. It was like for like five million. It's like, here, when you do raise money, I'm the person. That's one way to get in early. I mean, if you study venture, it's 50 years old now, right? People have been doing that for a long time. They find really talented product visionaries and they give them a little bit of money. So it's the same strategy. We just, the ecosystem has blown up. Um, it's curious, but I'm curious what you guys think of the labels, right? You called it pre-idea or some, some yeah. founder called it a soil round. He's like, really? you guys do soil investing? And I, it took me, I'm slow, right? So it was like, oh, seed, pre, a soil. Oh, okay, pre-seed, because yeah. it was what the seeds yeah. go into. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I would yeah. not have gotten That's there. really funny. I yeah. think... I think we both agree that the names are extremely arbitrary and pretty meaningless today. Um, We've gone into fight about that with people. On yeah, Twitter. like you've got pre-seed, which is now institutionalized with with several firms. Um, you've got seed, which for a long time was not, which, which itself was not, um, you know, really recognized as a stage. And then you have Series A, Series B. I mean, especially the Series A, I think it's where we're seeing the most sort of um, insane rounds because you'll see an $85 million Series A. And we bring it up all the time because it, it's like it's frustrating and people are like, well, don't pay attention to that. It's like, then why market at all? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the old riff that a Series A is merely the first like institutional money at a price equity valuation uh, loses its value if you can raise $15 million pre-A because then when you get to an A, you're not really at that stage. You've been, you've 
you're way more mature, even though you're at the technical Series A definition and you get these outsized rounds. And then people tweeted us that we're misclassifying. And then I'm like, yeah. no, I'm not saying this. They they are. It's not I'm, our fault. Don't don't blame the reporters. <laughs> the messenger. Yeah. 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 Uh, before we move on to the IPO thing, really quick, um, we've talked a lot this week about Seed because we were at YC and mm-hmm. your firm was at the demo day, and you know everyone's had their head in the early stage market. Um, what is the the Seed to A graduation rate like recently? Are, are you seeing uh, Series A investors have like rising? Uh, criteria for companies to graduate into that level of maturity and get that kind of capital, or is it kind of stable or getting easier? Like, what's the status of that benchmark? Alex, is a great question. So this is the, this is exactly the heart of the issue, right? As the funds have gotten bigger over the last decade, the burden for proof on founders to raise an A has gone way up. So instead of just being a conceptual idea with really talented people, you now need a core team, a product that works, like you built what you said you were going to, and most importantly, traction, usually in reference customers and revenue. And that's what, you know, when you have a billion dollars to put to work, I'm just, you know, round numbers, you can't write five, seven million dollar checks, right? You've got to write 15, 20 million dollar checks if you actually want to spend any time with the founders. So whether they say it or not, they're taking less risk. They want to see more proof of the original concept, which is why seed has become a thing in the first place, right? So it used to be as Ron Conway and Mike Maples, those were angels, super angels. But then it became institutionalized because the, the firms like, like Lightspeed, which was an amazing, you know, 12 years for me. They got more focused on, I would say, the growth stage of investing, which is now kind of what a Series A is. So it left this big hole in the seed market. And there were things like YC, by the way, great interview with Michael Seibel. But their business model is very different, right? It's a high volume. I mean, he said it. He's like, most of ours don't work. They don't need to. And so the whole thing with you know, the seed market is, well, the founders deserve more, right? Venture doesn't scale. It doesn't scale. Every entrepreneur's journey is unique, and they need help from people who have been there before and can really help them. So if you're giving the same advice to bubble bath for dogs that you're giving to cybersecurity companies, I don't think you're doing founders a service, right? You've got to give them real hands-on help with hiring, selling, telling their story, because that's what matters at the seed stage. If you can do those things well, then there's plenty of money waiting for you at the Series A. Now, to translate that just a little bit, the last point there for people who might not be fully aware, like, when, you, when you're a young company, you don't have a person who does everything. People wear multiple hats. Everything's very hard. It's chaotic. Hopefully, you're growing quickly, and that puts extra pressure on the business. All of a sudden, you have a sales tax problem, whatever it is. You need a lot of help from people who come and say, that's not a problem. That is a problem. You need to call this person. You need that kind of help. It, 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 early stage should be, if done well, in my view, a hands-on experience. It now, should be bespoke. That's bingo. So when you asked me the graduation rate, we thought it was way too low. It's like, why are all these great founders failing? It's like, oh, because all the seed investors are just playing roulette. They're oh, they're putting a bunch of chips money. on Yeah, it's a spray and pray approach. And they're not getting the real help because it doesn't scale. You have to give people real bespoke help along the journey. And if you do that, there's all this A money now waiting for them. There's, there's one, one thing in this whole discussion is just more money. The reason why seed can go late and late can go seed is there's just so much capital available. I mean, this is just a, a, a facet of the zero yeah. interest policy. Yeah, as I pointed out in, in the story I wrote, there are nine U.S. venture funds that raised more than $500 million uh, in funds that closed in the first six months of 2019. And in total, I think there was $20 billion brought into the market in that time frame that across is, all the new funds. So, so there money. is no shortage of capital, which is why we see so many different um, the institu- institutionalization of all these different stages. Well, let's talk about the the, the flip into the market then. Uh, instead of talking about the, the seed, pre-seed, seed extension, and then A, and then A1 rounds that we all get to chew through these days, um, there's more riffage on 
kind of breaking up the traditional IPO. And I feel like there's now enough noise about this, especially after the direct listings of uh, Spotify and Slack, yep. um, that we may actually see a bit of a, not a sea change per se, but at least a, a, a directional shift in how tech approaches IPOs. Kate, do you want to kind of uh, break down what we have here? Some, so from what I know, and correct me if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but Michael Moritz, mm. is that correct? Yeah, you got okay. it. Michael Moritz, formerly of Sequoia. One of the best ever. Wrote a... Formerly um, a journalist, by the way. Mm, the truth. Best yeah. questions. Wrote a story for Financial Times, basically calling bullshit on the current and traditional IPO process. So I thought we couldn't swear on the show. Yeah, yeah I was, sorry, Chris. Okay. So <laughs> Michael Moritz um, has the same opinion as Bill Gurley, another very famous venture capitalist. Both of them are big advocates of direct listings, which, as Alex just pointed out, is the method that Spotify and Slack have sort of made famous, um, a method of going public without having to lose a bunch of money by paying a bunch of Wall Street bankers and all that fun investment banking to actually get there. And you don't sell any new shares, which means you don't make any new money when you do a direct listing. So there are definitely pitfalls. Um, not all companies can do it because you have to have a very recognizable recognizable brand in order to complete a direct, direct listing. Yeah, and the reason why we we talk about this is there's there's a lot of money at stake. I mean, if you take a company public in a traditional manner, like, you know, AppDynamics was pursuing a traditional IPO before it was uh, snapped oh, that up. That was the craziest thing ever. I'm still mad that that didn't go public, by the way. That would have been some great earnings calls. Oh, well. Uh, that's how life goes. Um, you end up uh, setting aside a bunch of shares to sell to the underwriters. There's a block of shares you're going to sell to um, kind of selected investors. It's not really the general public. They get access to IPO shares. And then there's a big haggling process. A price is set. You pay fees, I think, the whole way through. And you go out, and lately, your stock price has gone up dramatically. And this has led to a lot of complaint in the market. To the point, actually, I now kind of agree with it. It's gotten kind of egregious. Shares going up 70, 80 percent the first day. And then, you know, the bankers sit on, they get to buy 3 million shares at an 80 percent discount. And all of a sudden, they're going home to the bank and didn't do much of the work. So I, I don't know. When, when you look at this space, you know, do you think that we're going to see more direct listings down the road? Are founders that you know talking more about that exit strategy? Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons, right? A lot of the companies are going public, they're doing so later. They've raised big rounds of private capital before. So they're much more established as businesses and their brands are much more well-known. It used to be that the bankers kind of controlled the information and they sold those IPOs to a very select group of institutional investors who were their buddies. Yeah. And now with companies where you, we all use the products, why not? Why not skip that whole process if you can't? Now, it's not for everybody, right? A lot of enterprise software companies, as an example, where I live in that world, that's, you know, my mom doesn't understand what some of these things, and she doesn't want to, right? So that's not going to work for a direct listing. But things like, you know, the products we use every day, and the companies are very established, they actually don't need to raise the capital. To Kate's point, they're just selling existing shares. Traditionally, in IPO, you actually sold new shares so that the company got a new inflow of capital that it could then use. These companies don't need cash. So that was the thing with Slack. Everybody knew it. They used the product, and they didn't need the capital. So they just went the direct listing route. They had $750, $800 million in cash on their balance sheet, um, which, I mean, only in 2019 do I see that and go, oh, I thought it'd be higher. Interesting. But you notice that they actually use Morgan Stanley. So they, they did use some of the bankers because... Post-IPO, you do want intelligent people covering your company and writing research yeah. about it. Because otherwise, you have, you know, I guess, unsophisticated investors who own all of your shares. And every time there's a bump in the market, they're going to sell. So it helps to have these smarter institutional investors, actually, as part of your share base. But it's much cheaper overall than doing a traditional IPO. Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Kate. Saves them tens of millions of dollars. Just crazy. And I think I just want to highlight, since we talked about Michael Moritz, um, and we kind of complimented him, that uh, not everything he says is 
the most intelligent. He did uh, famously say that he didn't want to hire women at his firm because they w- would be of lower standards. Oh, that, yeah. I just wanted to just say that one thing so our listeners, you know. Is that true? Yeah, he's something like uh, in a Bloomberg inter- interview with Emily Chang, he said they didn't have any women. This was, this was before they had Just Lee and... Um, that he'd have to lower his standards in order to uh, hire female partners. I, I think it was really like, why, why haven't you? Yeah, just yeah. like one of those one of those great tales of Silicon Valley. Uh, but he was what's fascinating about that little anecdote is mm-hmm. now how wildly out of touch that sounds. Completely. I bet I bet when that happened, I bet people were like oof, but they weren't yeah. like jaw droppingly shocked about it. But now you I, you say that and I'm almost like oof. Right, like, and Sequoia obviously has women there at the firm now. So yeah, they've shaped up. It's not the best anecdote, but. Just wanted to include it since we uh, mentioned him. Yeah, totally fair. I mean, I think one of the mistakes we make on the show sometimes is we mention highs and we don't bring in the lows. So that's yeah. uh, or we mention lows and we don't bring in highs. Ah, uh, that's fine. <laughs> and you know what? You know why that's fine? It's because everyone else has huge PR staffs and ad budgets. We are the response to their positive spin on the world. And so I don't <laughs> mind if we're overly negative because everything else is paid to be positive. We are the response I agree. to that. You guys Amen. do a great job. Well, you. you can come back then. Um, <laughs> can we can we wrap up uh, with some notes on Airbnb? Because I have a suspicion that uh, a couple of things. One, we will see a public offering from this company in the next 12 months. Maybe a direct listing. And exactly, Kate, maybe a direct listing. So kind of apropos to our topic, um, there were some numbers that the journal reported and then uh, Reuters confirmed uh, about the company. I'm just going to kind of list them quickly here, and then I want to get a response from everyone. Uh, the company's gross bookings were up 31% in Q1 to $9.4 billion. Not revenue to the company, but gross bookings spend on its platform. Uh, revenue, a different metric, grew by 40% in 2018, which at scale, I don't know, maybe it's pretty good. They had about $3.5 billion in cash at the end of Q1. And um, I think that's roughly about it. They also were uh, EBITDA profitable in 17 and 18. So um, we don't know, as we discussed before the show, how to, how to value their gross bookings. We don't know what their take rate is. But I think for every 1% of marketplace spend of gross bookings, it's $94 million in net revenue for them. So Starting there, uh, is this the scale we expected? Is this smaller, bigger? What do we think? Um, I think I wasn't surprised to read that report, in which uh, it was the Wall Street Journal report that we that you're, well, those numbers are from. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Airbnb is on track to having a pretty successful historical IPO in the next year. Um, or, sorry, IPO or direct, direct listing. So can't say I was shaken by any of those numbers. But 30% at scale is fast, but not exactly Zoom fast. You know, So do you think investors are going to be relatively content with that kind of growth from a company that is valued at over $30 billion? You know, Surprisingly, there aren't that many companies at that scale historically that grow at 30%. I mean, those are big numbers to be growing on. So I, I think so. I would bet there's a big appetite for that. And if you think about our criteria right, for a direct listing, Brand everybody knows, business model you understand, and it sounds like they've got plenty of cash. The question is, are they burning a lot of cash or not? And so would they want to do a more traditional IPO to raise more capital, or are they totally fine with the amount that they have? Yeah, I imagine they're burning a lot less cash than some of these other unicorns we spend a lot of time talking about. Um, and I know that Airbnb has invested a lot in their enterprise side, so like helping business travelers, and I think that just based off our coverage, that that's been a huge um avenue of revenue for the company. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to watch how they uh, 
invest in those elements of the business ahead of an IPO. Yeah. I mean, I think when you look back at last week, which was the Cloudflare S1, it was the We Company or WeWorks S1, and it was Smile Direct Club's S1. I didn't think I'd want a new S1 so quickly, but now I really, really want this one. Well, of course you really want this I, one. I, we I, all but, want this one. I, yeah, but I mean like... you got to hold your horses. How long though? I mean, if they're not going to be disclosing or leaking or whatever revenue numbers like you know, Uber did before it went public and WeWork did before it filed, I mean, we must be getting close to the end. I think people fear an election year. People get a little nervous. Like you, you start seeing companies hurry now to the, while the window is open because it's what is 11, 12 years of a bull market. I don't think it's, there's ever been a 13th. So is that true? I, I don't know. At least not that I know of. Because that was a heck of a quote. I was like, yeah. wow, that's, <laughs> that, that's a quit. Uh, well, shall we wrap up, Kate? Uh, well, thank you for coming on. It was lovely to have you. Uh, perfect week to have you on talk about seed. Kate, thank you for having me on. And uh, we'll be back in seven days, everyone. You guys are terrific. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye, everyone. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. Uh, is this the scale we expected? Is this smaller, bigger? What do we think? Okay. <laughs> um, we can edit that out. Do you, do you not have an opinion? <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I think it's... Can you make one up? Yeah, I can make one up.